The following program was pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders every weeknight at 6. I'm Tamrika, and in our virtual studio tonight with me is my fellow co-host. I'm Rashawn Leek, and Roundtables Tuesdays is when Tamrika and I tackle a subject and invite folks in the community to come on and talk about it. Tonight, we're talking about the high costs and rising costs of living here in the Beehive State and what means and what that means coming out of COVID. So coming up, we've got Andrew Johnston with Salt Lake City Mayor's Office. He's the Director of Homelessness Policy and Outreach. Also, Tara Rollins, Utah Housing Coalition Executive Director, and Juliet Tennard, who's a Chief Economist at the Kempsey Gardner Policy Institute. Before we get there, today is the final installment of Radioactive's COVID Diary series, so we'll dispense with rallies and resources for today. Since last fall, COVID Diaries has passed on the mic to Native populations of Utah, to educators, kids, and teenagers, to Asian Americans living in Utah, to BLM activists and allies, to Latina ex-residents. And uh, it's only fitting that we end with today's topic, which is effects of COVID on people experiencing homelessness. So here's COVID Diaries on the effects of COVID on unsheltered populations of Salt Lake City. COVID has impacted all of us, but it's not surprising that its effects have been felt more by certain populations, unsheltered population being one of them. Many of the service providers had to pivot and change the way services were being offered. I checked in with some of them to recap this past year. This is Janita Emerson. She is a CEO of Fourth Street Clinic. It has been a very challenging year. I cannot emphasize that enough. We have really had to shift a lot of what we have done over the course of the last year. And then surprisingly, in some ways, we do the same thing that we've always done, which is provide integrated care services to individuals who are experiencing homelessness. The biggest impact of COVID is obviously because this population carries such a high risk with them. They live in communal settings or congregant settings, limited access to basic hygiene. We really had to think long and hard about what was going to be the best way to serve them while keeping them all safe and then keeping our staff safe as well. Starting in last March, we erected tents in our back parking lot. So the best way that we decided to do that was to do most of our services outside. Sometimes it takes a crisis to bring a group together. And I have observed that within the homeless system, providers have really come together and we're all really working together in a way that I have not seen us work together necessarily in the past. And the same has happened with our staff. They've really come together to support each other. They worked outside in those full hooded gown getups when it was 103 and they do it every day and they do it because they love this population. We've lost 10 people just in the past past year during COVID. That's Matilda Lindgren, Deputy Director at In Between Medical Respite and Hospice for the Homeless. Spending their last few days, weeks, months 
in this building with no chance to go take a walk in their neighborhood one more time or see old friends one more time. I think that's something that no matter how often we talk about, just been really heartbreaking. I think for myself, that's been the hardest thing to see, knowing we couldn't make their last few days more fulfilled. Definitely have had our fair share of people that come here with nobody. They don't see anybody. They don't get phone calls and that's that. But we do sometimes have people come in that have family that very much want to be involved, but for whatever reason, they can't be the caregiver. And we always respect that. We don't know people's stories prior to coming here. Most of us have had experiences with family where we know where we have to draw our limits. So we're happy to step in and take on that role and let them just be the mom or the sister and not have to be the caregiver. There is a general sense that unsheltered population of Salt Lake City has grown and become even more displaced since the COVID hit. Volunteers of America Homeless Outreach Team spends most of its time out in the community. I spoke with the program director, Amanda Christensen, about this. Visually, it looks like a lot more people, and I think there is truth to the fact that we are seeing an increase in homelessness. But part of the visual piece really is the fact that a lot of places where individuals who may have been experiencing homelessness would typically go, they're not available to them right now. We did see a little bit more desperation from the clients that we were seeing, and a lot of that was because services that they were accessing prior were limited or closed. It was just like, how am I going to get my needs met? Like, where am I going to shower? Where am I going to go to the bathroom? To kind of compound that, a lot of services were moved to like phone call or internet access only. Even like being able to go in and get a copy of your social security card um, for potentially applying for an apartment. All of those processes have shifted since COVID-19 became really reliant on having access to a phone or internet to be able to fill out appropriate applications because you couldn't walk in anymore. And then we've also seen an increase in abatements as well. Kelly with Open Air Shelter Coalition. Which is where they'll put up signs and kind of say, you can't be here anymore the day before, and then come in with bulldozers and police officers to clear, to sweep the camp. I don't believe that logic because you could also come in and help people clean up a space and provide resources without demolishing it. There's more effective ways of maintaining health and safety and sanitation for everyone in the city besides throwing away people's homes. Abatements of homeless camps throughout Salt Lake City have been highly criticized by some, while others believe they're necessary and critical to keeping our city clean. Ty Bellamy with Black Lives for Humanity is easily found at one of the camps most of the days. I caught up with her at Camp Lasso. Hi. 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 I'm, I'm recording. Okay. Okay. How are you? Oh, my God. I've had better days. Okay. So you got to tell me what's going on. Okay. So have you heard of Camp Lasso? Yeah. When they got pushed on the 10th of December, they went to the freeway that's adjacent to the road home. And then about two hours later, the police came and pushed them from there. So this area was scouted out by a couple of people. Then we knew that it was safe to bring them over here. The goal was always just to have them in a place where they could just be safe, where we could keep track of everybody and where they could get their bearings. Ty, what am I looking at here? So what we're looking at is we're in the middle of an abatement. They're losing their stuff. This is Dale Keller. He's the head of the 
department that comes out with these abatements from the health department and bulldozes everything. So he's gotten death threats and, and threats of physical harm. And so the police are coming out to protect him and the other people. I spoke with Dale Keller about the cost of those abatements, death threats, and his take on the issue. We're able to track pretty uh, carefully, pretty precisely what the cost is. And for the health department in 2020, we spent about a quarter of a million dollars just in environmental health addressing encampments. You know, that's just picking up, partnering with, collaborating with other agencies to coordinate cleanups, maybe working with a property owner, whether that's a business or something else. We will generally hire a labor component, whether that's using inmates from the county jail or hiring advantage services, which the city does as a labor resource, and that's another cost. In a large encampment, usually after we've given notice and had social service outreach, what is left is usually cleaned up with heavy equipment, and that's done for two reasons. Number one is it's more efficient, but way, way more important. In these camps, not to be stereotypical, but we find hundreds and hundreds of discarded syringes because addiction, particularly heroin, is a, is a problem with certain percent of this population. And so I've had some of my staff have needle sticks, so the lack of hand contact is really important. That doesn't include many, many other costs. And you had mentioned one, the police costs, particularly with the safety issue that has become pretty problematic. Probably the most compelling increase in abatements of camps have been the uh, third-party folks that uh, will be on site and many times it's a very unsafe environment and so there has to be a lot of police presence and other things think wouldn't be necessary but who are the third party exactly that are spiking up those costs and why do you think they're that angry with you I don't know. This is a question that I've thought about, and I guess it's just a highly volatile situation, but a number of these folks are there just to help and provide assistance to our unsheltered community. Others, I would argue, this is the perfect vehicle to uh, poke a stick, to agitate police officers and public health officials like myself. Those are the ones that uh, make this considerably more expensive than it should be, and quite frankly, considerably more dangerous than it should be. All that said, it seems as though conducting those abatements is extremely financially and emotionally draining, and I would say volatile. So are they actually necessary? From the health department, we're pretty focused on two issues, the environmental health component of the encampment and the public health component. I could take you to a number of places along the Jordan River, and uh, it's just devastating what encampments have done from garbage and trash and cutting down trees and open burning of campfires and those type of things. And so that's the environmental health piece. But the camps where we get involved, we articulate that it has reached the point where it's a compelling public health issue. Salt Lake City has a Norwegian rat problem, but the rats tend to be near highly vegetated areas or near waterways. In the last several months, every large camp that we've cleaned up, whether it's been Rio Grande or the old Sears property or 7th, 7th, 2nd East, we've seen a substantial uh, population of Norwegian rats that tend to use that as a vector for survival. And then there's you know, a couple of dozen 
zoonotic diseases associated with rats. And so that's one other public or environmental health issue. This is Maura Sanchez with Just Media and Open Air Shelter Coalition. It's important to recognize that if the city officials including the mayor, the police, and the health department were really worried about cleanliness and sanitation. We've been asking, demanding that they offer portable toilets and trash containers, and they haven't done so in a consistent manner. I think that in itself proves that it's not the actual argument that any of us should be making. We're not offering basic services to people experiencing homelessness. Also on the resources that they do offer and that said that people don't choose to accept those services, a lot of the reasons that they don't do so include safety or one of the issues that we've constantly heard is that they don't allow couples, for example. There was a mother with her baby in her arms saying that she couldn't go to the shelter because there were bed bugs in the shelter and so she couldn't be with her baby there. And that's something that doesn't come up in these cleanliness or sanitation arguments. Also, these shelters were a COVID hotspot. There's a lot to consider with regards to sanitation with so-called resources that the city offers. Maura, a million dollar question. Is there a solution? And if so, what is it? Prioritize housing, getting people um, into secure housing. As is typically the case, Mara took the words right out of my mouth. Kelly again was Open Air Shelter Coalition. Yeah, I think the answer 100% is a housing first policy. And what I mean by that is placing individuals into empty and abandoned homes, not abandoned as in derelict or bad, abandoned as in investment properties that aren't housing people. We see new condos coming up on every block and every street corner in downtown Salt Lake City, yet somehow we don't have any room for these folks, right, that are encamped on the streets. If the city really wanted to address homelessness, that's what they would do. This was something we used to do in Salt Lake City, you know, went away for various political reasons. Salt Lake City continues to struggle, like many communities around the country, trying to provide solutions for its unsheltered population. A debate rages about the proper course of action. For example, whether treatment for addiction or mental illness should precede the process of moving clients into permanent housing. While some argue that people suffering from the underlying causes of homelessness are not ready for permanent housing, the advocates of housing first approach argue that treatment is more effective once a person or family has found stable, long-term home. This is Amanda Christensen with Volunteers of America again. Housing is an issue, for sure. I don't think that we necessarily have, we don't have the housing needed. It's a complex issue and there's two parts to it, right? There's um, potential housing assistance, so the housing assistance dollars. And then the other piece is literally the housing stock. Do we have affordable and deeply affordable units, enough units to house all of the people that need housing? And when we're working with clients on housing, we do run into barriers. We struggle, just like everyone else, to find affordable housing units and and housing units um, that are within, you know, housing voucher limits or that are affordable enough for that individual to afford. I have been a full-time real estate agent in the state of Utah for almost 40 years. Babs DeLay, a principal broker and owner of urban Utah homes and estates. 
real estate market has been smoking hot. As a matter of fact, this is one of the hardest markets I have seen in my almost 40 years in business. And I've been through ups and downs, but this one really takes the cake. We have so few homes on the market that sellers are getting massive multiple offers and buyers are just being beat up like crazy. I can tell you, quite frankly, the state's population is going to double in the next couple of decades. Utah is down easily 50,000 units in housing. We are desperate for housing. And to add to that, we are desperate for affordable housing. And we just cannot keep up with the demand. I asked Dale Keller if he had a solution in mind. This is a problem that is growing at such an amazing rate that I just don't know how we can buy or build our way out of it. There's going to have to be some thinking outside the box. I personally, and again, this is Dale Keller speaking for himself, not for the city or for the county, that I think maybe a location where it's kept clean, there are potable water, there's garbage collection services and those type of things to allow people to camp because at least in that situation, we're choosing where these locations are instead of near a school or near the Jordan River or near a shopping mall or areas where it has a major negative impact. One of the variables you kind of hit on earlier was the fact that kind of some people just like this life or it's what they're used to. 5% avail themselves to overflow shelters, but we would consider that a success. And so the vast majority of folks on the street now are there because they choose not to avail themselves to the resources available in the county. We'll work with our partners and we'll clean up a camp. And for the most part, people will just move to another area. And so when one thinks of success is moving people from a highly fatigued area to another area, which will quickly become fatigued, that's a pretty low bar. And some of these kind of out-of-the-box solutions, I think, need to be entertained because what we're doing now is very compassionate, but it's also not sustainable. Now, if there's a health issue, fine, come and deal with it. But don't take some 70-year-old lady's only same thing she's got to her life. This is Rex. Rex has been living on the streets of Salt Lake for past eight years. He was asked about his feelings on abatements. If you're going to come out here because I don't have a house to put my stuff in and destroy everything that I have, that is nothing but guerrilla tactics. Come in here and taking my life, uh, irreplaceable stuff, pictures, mementos, stuff that I will never be able to replace. But if I try to do that to you, I'm going to prison. You know, you're stealing my stuff. You're a thief. I mean, I'll say it. I'll say it to the police all the time. You are a legalized thief. You don't even know me. So who are you to judge me? Well, because you have a badge in a house? Ten years ago, you'd be calling me sir. I used to own my own business. My mental health and a few other things tank that. This is supposed to be the greatest country in the world that I believed in, and I, I don't believe in them no more. I don't believe that another human being be that heartless. I feel like I'm a reject, like an animal. You treat me like an animal long enough, I start acting like an animal. One of some of you big elected officials, why don't you come out and stay with us for 24 to 48 hours and then tell you tell me how easy it is to be homeless. You'll get a really a full view of what it's like to be homeless. I'll put a tent up for you. When asked what kind of help he needs the most. Housing, of course. Mental health and also addiction, help with addiction. Their idea is, okay, this is going to throw you into a rehab. 
rehabs only work if you're mentally and physically ready and, and can handle that quit there's people out here that are mentally ill that they can't go into they get nervous about places like that i can't deal with it and what i would just say is just work with us no don't give us handouts don't make it easy for us i don't expect to be able to you know just walk right into a house and say well thanks guys for giving me all this i'm willing to work for it Maybe make a program where you go out and you give back. You work 20 hours a week for the city or something like that to, you know, make yourself feel like you, you know, earned your way in. I'd have no problem working for the city 20, 30, 40 hours. They give me a place to stay, I work for free whenever they want. In fact, Maud's Cafe in Salt Lake City seems to follow that exact model. In partnership with Volunteers of America and Department of Workforce Services, they run the only paid internship program for homeless youth in Utah. This is Tanya Montagna, who runs the the cafe. We have two different programs. It's a first half and a second half. The first half is basic cafe skills where they get to learn how to run the cafe and make beautiful beverages and sandwiches every day. And then the second half of the program is more of a um, like a management side of the program where we kind of teach them how to be more responsible for inventory, the tills, they get to help train the new trainees that come in, try and teach them money management skills, how to keep going in life. Difficulties is just keeping them here, getting them through the system, Mm -hmm. um, trying to keep them out of being in the streets. Some of them come to us with very emotional problems. Some of them come to us with drug issues. Try to keep them sober as much as possible. This is Rex again. I started out here at the shelter, and the shelter here, I'm sorry, it's not, I can't say it's anybody's fault, was a cesspool. Drugs, violence, just, man, I couldn't deal with it anymore. They just basically send you on your way. You're just a number to them. I had no idea about half the resources or how to get half the resources. I was on a list for three years for housing and never got called for nothing. Never got called up. I checked daily, checked weekly. We're homeless. We're unsheltered. We're no different. We just want to be treated as individuals instead of being treated like a group, like we're savages and stuff. Sometimes we have been fairly judged because there are the bad members out there, bad groups. But as a whole, we're good people. We have problems. I didn't even know I had a mental illness for years. And that's what got me out here because I I didn't know. I was just always angry and I had an alcohol problem and it just got worse and worse and worse. I was faced with so many barriers just for the fact that I was homeless. I got shut down, shut out of everything and judged. I gave up completely. I just said, okay, society doesn't want me, so I don't want society. But we, we need your help. We don't need a handout. We need a hand up. Some of the most talented people, some of the really intelligent people, I know are homeless. Some of the best people I've met in my life are homeless. But when you're walking down the road and look at me, you may look at me and see some dirty guy, but you also you might see a dirty guy with a college degree. He's doing his own business, was successful, but just didn't know how to handle a mental illness and how to get help and let it take over his life. Really, you guys, be careful who you're judging because everybody's one mistake, one bad decision for being homeless. This is Alabama. It's hard to see people broke down and, and hurt and, and cold and hungry and then... Do you have a cigarette, sugar? You know. All I know is uh, uh, we are the people, too. And so we should be able to live like we want to do and not have anybody in this free world to tell us what to do, how to do it, when to do it, or anything else. You know, I don't want anybody telling me I can go somewhere, I can't go somewhere. If oil and money are more important than people, then I don't know what to tell you. I'm grateful to be able to be out here because they said told me to go to the shelter. If I go to the shelter, they have the virus at the shelter. 
there. I went down to the shelter. Like they said, the lady from the clinic called and told them. Now, when I got there, they had no idea who she was. And so they were catching things on fire, and people were yelling in there. And I had PTSD and anxiety like no other. And so I couldn't, I didn't feel safe there. I didn't feel comfortable. People are arguing, screaming, and yelling, and I have to get away from it because I have a bad time with it, really strong. But I'm just trying to do what I know to do. I don't know. I'm just trying to survive. can't worry about all that other stuff. I'm worried about getting day-to-day and, and getting a, a tarp on my tent so it doesn't get wet, so all my stuff gets wet and ruined again and get pneumonia and, and, and because it's damp and wet. I, and I'm still trying to worry about the garbage and everything else in the world, so it's not easy. So I'm not too worried about who's responsible for a garbage can or anything like that. You know, I'm worried about people and the kids and, and stuff, and, and I don't know. I get upset. Alabama has been living on the streets of Salt Lake City for the past few years. I thank Ty Bellamy with Black Lives for Humanity for facilitating the interviews with Rex and Alabama. And that's the final installment of COVID Diaries made possible in part by a grant from Utah Humanities. For past episodes, go to krcl.org. Support for KRCL comes from the Joan Trump Hour Mulholland Foundation, creators of the Civil Rights Veterans Relief Fund to help veterans of the movement with food, medical housing, and utility bills. Details online at jtmfoundation.org. Hi, this is Azra, librarian from the County Library. This week, we have three great picks on housing affordability and sharing economy. My first pick is Tiny Houses Built with Recycled Materials by Ryan Mitchell. This book describes methods of building tiny homes using recycled materials and provides examples of how different people build their own tiny homes. My second pick is Shared Living, Interior Design for Rented and Shared Spaces by Emily Hutchinson. Shared houses traditionally get a bad rap, but the reality of global housing markets has made sharing a long-term solution for many. Featuring 21 shared homes around the world that are getting it right, shared living uncovers the potential of shared spaces. And finally, my third pick, Dear Librarian by Lydia Sigbert. When Lydia was five years old, she and her family had to leave their home. They hopped from Grandma's house to Aunt Linda's house to Cousin Alice's house, but no place was permanent. Then one day, everything changed. Lydia's mom took her to a new place, not a house, but a big building with a bunch of books and tall, tall steps, the library. And to remind our listeners, all county libraries have extended their visits to one hour. All of my picks are available at thecountylibrary.org. My name is Azra Bashic, and these are my three quick picks on housing affordability and sharing economy. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and all month long, KRCL brings you Mental Health Mondays with tips and resources from local experts. Join us for the month as we help raise awareness about mental health. Find a list of resources at krcl.org. Welcome back to Radioactive and Roundtable Tuesdays. I am Tamri Kartisiashvili. And I'm Rashawn Leek. Coming up at 7, Democracy Now!, Vagabond Radio with Barbie at 8, Connor's Late Night Lowdown starts at 10.30. All of our programming and the radioactive archives may be found online at krcl.org. And now it's time for our panel discussion on the rising high costs of living in Utah, its effects on different populations of Utah, and what that all means coming out of COVID. On our panel, we have Salt Lake City Mayor's 
Office's Director of Homelessness Policy and Outreach, Andrew Johnson. Also Tara Rollins with um, Executive Director of Utah Housing Coalition. And Juliet Tennant, who's a Chief Economist at the Kempsey Garden Gardner Policy Institute. Welcome all to Radioactive. Thank you. Welcome all three. Welcome. Glad to have you. Juliet, um, I want to start with you. And I would like to start with asking you, um, where are we economically in Utah coming out of COVID? And how, we, how do we compare nationally? And maybe you can start us off by introducing yourself and your work in a little more detail as well. Sure, I appreciate the opportunity. So um, I work for the Kempsey Gardner Policy Institute. Uh, we are a policy institute that's part of the David Eccles School of Business at the University of Utah. And really we've studied all things Utah economy. Um, we do a lot of work in housing, real estate, and construction. We do a lot of work in um, Utah's demographics and forecasting our population. And so coming out of COVID, I, you know, Utah, you look at the numbers, you look at our unemployment rate, it's quite low. You look at our job growth rate, quite high compared to other places. And so I would really say economically speaking, kind of um, at like kind of at the aggregate level, Utah right now has, you know, among the best economies in the nation, if not the best, and fared um, extremely well during the COVID pandemic um, that recession. And so we're positioned really well. And I, I, you know, during, I'm sure during this panel discussion, we'll, we'll get to dig deeper. I think that it's really important that when we hear, you know, a news story about Utah's low unemployment rate or, you know, high job creation rate, we recognize that that's kind of an average at the top compared to other places. And so as we start to dig down deeper and look at, you know, certain areas of state, whether it be, you know, geographically or certain populations of the state, um, there are some major challenges uh, that existed prior to COVID and that COVID really exacerbated. And so, um, you know, well-positioned, um, kind of, you know, overall average, but still a lot of challenges remains as we, as we're kind of coming out of um, the pandemic, you know, from the health side and then also from the economic side. Andrew, uh, SLC's Mayor Office, Director of Homelessness Policy and Outreach. I want to bring you into the conversation. So Julia just touched on how, as far as the state's concerned, I would say arguably we're doing amazing. So would you expect to see a correlation to that with our numbers of unemployment being so low? Would Are you surprised to see that the homeless is still growing? Well, I'm not an economist, but I, I think sometimes we kind of lump it all together in one group. Like we're all going to move up and down together. Mm-hmm. It's not like that. And we all know that. We know that there's a big division between those who've done incredibly well during the pandemic, even better than they did before, and those who did worse. Um, and so I think it's surprising that when we have economic downturns, that those at the bottom of the economic system who make the least amount of money, least amount of education, who are probably already um, housing insecure, are the brunt of it. And so the growth is not too surprising. Um, personally, and over a number of decades working in, in the field, you'll see these these sort of bust and boom cycles uh, that come and go. I think the things that um, were just brought up is that whatever was happening before, the problems we had before, didn't sort of create new, they, they just worse. And so we know for a long time that there's a lot of folks on the streets who have mental illness in some way. And 
the, the difficult piece there is what uh, the gentleman brought up earlier. He just said, look, I didn't know I had it for a while. Um, you know, a lot of times it, I don't realize I have an issue until it becomes so bad that I have been another issue or I have three other issues going on at the same time. So I think those things have always been along. I think this has exposed our, um, our healthcare system, our education system, our digital equity system. Um, it exposed to some extent um, other institutions that are picking up the slack for us. I'll say libraries particularly. Uh, when Amanda Christensen of BOA talked about places that people go, for decades, libraries have been the place people go. That's where you get your bathrooms and your water and your time away, your safety, your security, where if you have mental illness and you get claustrophobic, you go to a place that's open. If you need to go inside when it's raining or snowing, I go to the library. I can go to find a corner of the library. It's quiet. All those things. So it exposed all that stuff already. Um, so the pandemic has been really harsh on this population. Um, Andrew uh, Johnston, I have so many questions for you, but let me just start with this broad one. So I want to stay with you for another minute. Uh, so Mayor Mendenhall recently announced part of um, or uh, was the newly assigned position under Mendenhall's administration. You will be affecting some of Utah's policies on those issues, on the issues of homelessness. So um, if you can, in just few words, tell us what are your main plans? Well, I, I literally started yesterday uh, <laughs> on my computer this morning. Uh, so it's good to be with y'all. Um, I think uh, I'm on the State Commission for Housing Affordability. I've been there for a couple of years now. And this morning we were talking about this coming year and some of the priorities for that full statewide commission. And there's a lot of folks on that commission. Some folks that aren't necessarily deep involved in deeply affordable housing issues. But one of the things that we brought up was that we probably, in Sully County alone, we probably need about 3,000 units. They're deeply affordable. Um, whether that's a brand new thing that's built, whether that is something we buy and remodel, um, we preserve something that's already there that's being bought up by developers, et cetera. Um, and because of the, the market and the costs in the market right now, folks who are redeveloping properties or building are saying that it's going to cost about an average today of about $160,000 for one unit. Now, to build a new one, it's probably north of 300000 To get an existing sort of apartment or, or, or place to rent and then do some remodeling is much less than that, but the average is somewhere in there. If you do the social worker math, which I'm a social worker, um, you come up with north of $400 million to do that. Now, think about that $400 million. Now, as we go into a state budget cycle or a city budget or any budget, um, you'll see that dwarfs most of those sort of budgets. Um, it gives you sort of a scale on the scope of what we're talking about. We're not going to get there quickly. Um, but that's sort of, if that is our objective, to end homelessness, um, and housing is the critical component to that, that gives us a target. Now, as a city, we need to continue to put money towards that. We have for a couple of years now, as much as we possibly can. I think that's going to be ongoing discussion. I think it's going to go into land use and zoning. I think it's going to go into how do we coordinate with the county on their services, because in Utah, counties tend to provide a lot of social services, mental health services, addiction services, substance use services, um, county health departments there, all those kind of our county-based stuff. So we have to work with them closely. The state is the biggest funder for homeless services. We have to work with the state. This is going to be a coalition, literally, um, to really attack this. And even then, it's going to be a heavy lift. So we have to really be willing to go about this for a number of years. Um, when I threw out that first figure of 3,000, that doesn't count. We estimate we'll probably need about 1,400 per year every year going forward for the next four years in addition. Um, 
So this is a tall mountain to climb, but we have to have the will to attack it and do it. Tara Rollins, I want to bring you into the conversation as well using our Utah Housing Coalition Executive Director. I know you and your organization has has been pivotal in making sure people remain in their houses. So hearing the number that Andrew is talking about and seeing that, you know, it, it, it appears that the economy is doing well, but I know the housing market is crazy. Is there any relief in sight for people looking to get into houses? Well, yes and no. Um, I think we have an incredible opportunity right now in terms of the funding that is coming to the state through CARES Act funding and also um, the new funding that has is going to be hitting us. And we have a third wave of funding um, that will be coming you know, from the federal government. And so the state right now has $1.8 billion of discretionary funding. And, you know, we are really pushing to, um, to take 20% of that funding and put it into housing. Um, we do have, um, for, you know, developers to be able to be in the game, you know, it's expensive right now. You know, um, investors, you know, portfolios are very important to investors. Well, a nonprofit developer or a housing authority, um, housing means something different. It means investing in a community. And so we need to make sure that they have the resources to be able to do that. And historically, the state has only put $2.2 million into um, housing, which would go directly to the only Walker Housing Loan Fund. And so this is a big opportunity and it's a, it is a big ask, um, you know, $320 million, but you know, you have to go big, you know, because guess what? There's no home to go home to right now. Um, we are seeing, um, you know, things that have really, I mean, other people have been able to see the things that I've seen for years now um, because COVID-19 has really kind of, you know, peel back the onion for people to see. Um, I think, you know, we're talking about homelessness, but we're also talking about our wage earners. You know, 30% of AMI, which, you know, we talk about a lot and we can't build to that low level, but that's really, you know, our lowest paid people. You know, it costs, you know, almost $20 an hour for a two bedroom apartment at fair market rate. I mean, that's a lot of money. And when you look at how many jobs pay less than $19 an hour, it's like 40, 400,000 jobs that are out there. And we're talking about, you know, our receptionists and our, you know, information clerks, nursing assistants, you know, stalkers, um, stalkers, you know, customer service representatives, um, you know, waiters and waitresses, fast food and counter workers, cashiers, those are all you know, service jobs. And if we're going to invest in tourism in our state, we need to invest in the infrastructure where people can live. Yeah, and actually um, my next question, uh, I wanna stay with you, Tara, is about that because as far as housing goes, it seems like we're not just worried about the people experiencing homelessness, but now also we're worried about people who might become homeless, right? And those mm -hmm. are working people. Um, so with that in mind, with the, the working class um, people in mind of Utah, 
it seems like more and more people can't find housing in Salt Lake proper and uh, are, can only afford to buy a house if they're willing to move out of city proper. So what what is the housing coalition? Like what, what do you foresee can be done about that? I mean, we can continue to grow exponentially, but it seems like uh, the housing can't catch up. So what are some of the policies or some of the things that you're working on that can address those issues? Well, we, as I indicated previously, we have this opportunity with this funding that's coming to the state. And if we were to invest it um, in programs that were deed restricted, and that could be, you know, rental or home ownership. You talked about home ownership, but home ownership is so out of reach for anyone right now. Anything that's coming on the market is going, you know, for thirty, forty thousand um, dollars more um, than what's being asked because other people are able to um, purchase it, whether it's in, for investment or, um, you know, short-term rentals. Um, that's a big thing right now that's taken away from the inventory of our housing. But for me, um, really looking at, um, we just produced a report on um, expiring properties for seniors. And so really taking a look at those properties and making sure we don't lose the, that inventory of housing. We also really need to look at um, our evictions and how people are ending up crippled financially um, due to you know trouble damages and fees that people are being charged when they're being evicted. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things that we need to be working on in terms of you know, what is happening beyond just building, you know, how do we keep people in their homes? You know, if they have a hiccup, there's no place for them to go except for the corner, um, you know, cash place. And you're listening to a Roundtable Tuesday edition of Radioactive. On the panel, we have Andrew Johnston, SLC Mayor's Office, Director of Homelessness Policy and Outreach, Tara Rollins, Utah Housing Coalition, and Julie Tenner, Chief Economist at the Kim C. Gardner Policy Institute. Andrew, I, I know you said today was, or arguably your first day. So, so I think this is a this is a good opportunity to ask you what is when when you leave this role to whoever your predecessor will be years from now. What does success look like? Well, I think success would be ultimately we have to have a metric to say there are few people on the streets and unhoused than we have today. Uh, that's a clear, concrete one we got to have. Uh, that also lends into the second piece of how closely aligned are the cities and the county, the county, the coalition, the state? How closely aligned are we in our policies, our actions, those kind of things? Because we got to have a way to, to measure that. Um, if one city is doing it or two or five, um, we're still going to have the same problems we have right now. Um, a real discrepancy in where you can go and where you can't go. Um, I think the, the Salt Lake Valley Coalition and the state have the ultimate goal of ending homelessness, um, but the intermediate goal of making it rare, brief, and non-reoccurring. I think you can measure those things based on shelter stays, um, folks on the street, how long they're on the street in tents, um, or, or temporary shelters, those kind of things. I think we can measure those things as well. But again, that's also a larger um, piece of this puzzle where if it's statewide, we really got to take statewide metrics. Um, because we may have a, a massive decrease in some areas and a massive increase in other areas based on where the resources are. 
um, which means you can look at the state data and say we have fewer people who are officially unsheltered in a point in time count, and yet one or two cities may have a massive increase because there's a migration effect, right? Um, the other piece I'd love to see, and this is maybe my city council, my former city council self coming in, is um, I'd love to see us be a great model of an inclusive city in zoning and housing types. Um, we have obviously a, a lot of traditionally single family homes in the city and larger families have been moving out of the city for a number of years, decades now. We have a massive increase in the multifamily, six story buildings higher with smaller apartments and a lot of micro units coming on that are catering to singles, single adults primarily. I'd love to see us have more in the middle. I think the mayor's initiative to do a tiny home community here as a pilot to show how he could do that is one step. I think accessory dwelling units um, in my neighborhood in Glendale, where we have deeper lots, um, it's a great alternative, uh, particularly for your immediate family or folks growing out or folks moving back in. Um, it feels like a single family home on a yard, which is what people sometimes really want. Not everybody wants to live in, in a high rise and it allows you to be close to city and transportation. I think ultimately when you look at a healthy city, um, the quality of life is probably directly tied to your type of housing, the quality of it, and the transportation network along open space. And those might be too broad for a director of homeless policy, but I think they'll factor into this discussion. Juliet, um, nationally, there's a lot of talk about people liking being unemployed. Our own Governor Cox on Sunday defended Republicans' push to end enhanced employment, saying that although some families continue to struggle amid the pandemic's economic fallout, the benefit must be rolled back. So majority of jobs being offered in Utah, I believe, are under $14 an hour. And as we've been discussing, it's really hard to live on that in Salt Lake City. What are your thoughts on that? And do you agree with the governor? Yeah, um, gosh, it's kind of a hard question to agree with the governor, but I mean, generally, I understand where the concern is coming from, right? So, um, you know, we're hearing from business owners that there's a labor shortage, they can't keep, they can't get people to come back to work. And, you know, that kind of it, the, the logic follows that, um, you know, people are kind of doing the math of, I go back to work and I um, can go back to work at this rate of pay, or I can continue on unemployment benefits at this amount. And, you know, it's a personal decision in the logic there. And so I think to some extent that's probably going on. Um, I mean, I think that in kind of do, so first of all, there was a jobs report that came out last month that maybe pointed to some of that labor shortage. Uh, first of all, from kind of an economist, economist standpoint, I want to actually see some more months of data there because one month does not a trend make. So that, that would be one, one point that I want to make sure that I understand and kind of, you know, kind of prescribing what, what to do about it. But I think, that, you know, a, a large kind of piece and maybe some of this shortage is really the fact that COVID-19 is still at play. Um, you know, not everyone has had the opportunity to get fully vaccinated. And I think there's still some hesitancy there that would be limiting things. And then also childcare is still a major issue. I mean, it was, childcare was an issue before the pandemic and it, you know, it, it continues to just be a major challenge now. Um, and like, it, you know, we've talked about this in, in some other places, but the pandemic really exacerbated that particular trend. And so, you know, I, I don't think that um, if there is, if there, and again, I want to see more data, but, you know, if there is a degree of labor shortage, I wouldn't put all of um, the cause onto enhanced unemployment benefits. And, you know, a policy for addressing that would just be to make sure that um, there's some sort of job search requirement 
that's attached to those benefits. But, you know, going back to the housing affordability issue, I think, you know, there's a lot of policy um, discussion on the supply side, and there's a lot of really important uh, tools that that are there, you know, the ADU's accessory dwelling units, uh, making, you know, policies that help to pencil out additional units coming on, you know, for the developers. But, you know, as Tara, as Tara kind of pointed to, that the, the wage side of things, the income side of things is actually a really important uh, piece of this discussion. And, uh, you know, so I'm making sure that there are policies in place that enhance economic equity, enhance the opportunity for higher wages. It's all part of the conversation. Now it's harder though, because those are like longer term policies. You know, you can't really flip a switch and, um, you know, work, get, get to towards those livable wages. But it certainly needs when when we talk about housing affordability, we can't we can't leave that that wage um, analysis out of the conversation. Tara, I want to I want to come over to you. What what do you see should be next steps to help resolve this? Because I mean, I know the governor is talking about the the benefits are going to be we're going to be removing benefits soon, and I know we Tamrika touched on people might be choosing unemployment over actively searching for jobs. So where where do we go? So one of the things I think people need to really do is take a step back and look at their business. You know, we have a lot of small business here in Utah and perhaps they need to revisit their business plan. Um, And I say that because wages do need to go up somehow. (laughs) And I think it starts at the very beginning of, um, you know, small businesses you know, we all want to get rich or, you know, have everything quickly. And I think um, we need to stop thinking that way. We need to start investing it back in our businesses. And that means investing in people. Um, you know, I would like to see, you know, also small businesses holding our hand saying, yes, we need housing people can afford. Um, because those are the people that are needing the housing. Um, We also need to, you know, I think, you know, have harder conversations with the governor's office of economic development in terms of when they are bringing jobs to our state and making sure these companies are paying a wage that people can afford housing, you know, a housing wage. Um, You know, we have a huge problem we haven't even touched on, and that is, you know, education and mobility and the ability for children to stay in the same school um, is is so important to their future. And if we continue not to invest, you know, in housing, you know, our next, you know, generation and the generations to come, they're not going to be educated. They're not going to be able to, you know, compete you know, in a job market. We also need to also look at not pushing people, you know, to go into college, but have other choices like trades. Right now, our trades are hurting for um, employees, people to um, go out and work on, you know, housing, plumbers, welders, you know, carpenters, you know, all of that. We're shy of that. And those are really well-paid jobs. Um, And so how do we incorporate people into, you know, getting higher wage jobs? I think also um, we have to get rid of the mentality of not in my backyard. You know, we don't want people, you know, living in our 
community, but these are the same people that we depend on every day. We drop our kids off to daycare. Those are late, low wage workers. We drop them off, you know, to school. Those teachers are low wage earners. The people that are serving food in the cafeteria are bus drivers. You know, all of these people are, are serving our community in such a way that is so important. But yet, those are the people that we don't want living in our community. You know, in terms of you know, we allow people to come into our house and clean. Let's say, but yet, those are the same people you don't trust to be your neighbor. So we really, um, I think, need to take a hard look at all the all of our systems, um, and really make some sacrifices for our future. Um, you know, it's difficult, and you know, the cost of housing just to build it is going up so much that we really need to all come together and figure this out, or else we're all going to be losers. That's Tara Rollins with Utah Housing Coalition. Um, Andrew, just two, three minutes that we have left on the panel. I have one more question for you. In the piece, we talked about housing first. Uh, do you think that still works or do we need to get better at what comes after housing first? Well, that's not an either or question. I think they're, they're inherent in housing first as always, you need support second. Um, that's always been a part of the model. Now, whether we've funded that is a separate question, right? We did a great job of building housing for about 15 years, uh, several new permanent supportive housing developments. Did we follow up with enough money for support for mental health and case management and substance use treatment and those kind of things? We probably didn't. Um, so housing first still is the model, I believe. Um, I think if you're talking about a small subpopulation of folks with mental illness, um, housing stability decreases stress, which decreases symptoms. Um, we can't diagnose somebody with any issues unless we can help them with some stability and get what's really happening. Because if you're homeless on the street, of course you've got symptoms. Of course you're going to use substances. It's lawful out there oftentimes. It's not enjoyable all the time. Some folks literally like it better than being in some housing, and that's a talk to the housing perhaps and a talk to sort of the systems we set up. Um, but it's not always easy to be homeless. And when people choose that over other options, it means we got to get rid of the other options, I think. And that's our show, Tamrika. A lot to talk about. Great conversation. A lot of uh, different takes on it. So I, I really uh, appreciate all of our panelists. Thanks for joining us. And uh, our listeners can check tonight's show notes for links to our guests and their organizations. Thank you very much for being on the panel. Thank you. Thank you, you Thanks. three. You three. Thanks. What'd you think, Tamrika? Great. You know, I have uh, so many questions for all three of them, and I was so grateful <laughs> to ask some of them. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm uh, excited to have, have them back to continue this conversation and see uh, what happens. You know, in the next, I think next few months will be really telling. No, I, I agree. I, I, I love all three of their perspectives. I think it, it was a rare opportunity to get Andrew in on day one. So I definitely want to follow and, and see what that's about. But I, you know, I mean, honestly, Tara hit the nail on the head. It, it takes, it's going to take everybody. It, it takes, it's a community effort. This is not one organization. This is not fair to put on the mayor's shoulders. This takes a lot of people working together and, and no longer working in silos to make this happen. And we can't just keep, you know, keep moving our homeless population from this encampment to that encampment. And that. So it's, it's an effort, but I, I, you know, I'm, you know me, I'm hopelessly optimistic and I think we can get, 
I think we can get through it, but it's not going to be one one group. It has to be all of us. I agree. And we need to all stop saying not in my backyard. Oh, right? my gosh. Seriously. I like that. Yeah, come to my backyard. Um, Radioactive is a production of Listeners Community Radio of Utah. Our executive producer is Laura Jones. I am Tamrik Ahtisiashvili. And I am Rashawn Leek. Until our next show, just keep taking care of your community. It takes all of us to win. Thank you, Rishan. Thank you, Tamrika. <laughs>